Jimmy Kowalski. The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. Troll you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. For the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there, and together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Store, and this is the show where we sit down with the most interesting people we can find and learn about their world. And on tonight's show, I am really excited for the conversation I'm about to present because it concerns something that really is inescapable for all of us, and that is money. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. That's one of my favorite little bits of dialogue. That's from David Mamet's film Heist, which if you have not seen, I recommend you do. Money is one of those things that is central to all of our lives. No matter what you do, where you are, you are in some way dependent on this great system, this this economy in which we find ourselves. But Very few people know much about how that system works. Very few people know how to manage money. And really, I think it's one of the great unspoken truths and really dirty secrets of the modern era is that very few of us properly understand how to manage money. When I was presented earlier this year with an opportunity to audit a corporate finance class, which was part of New York University's continuing education program, I took it because someone offers you free education you take it. But I was not expecting to meet someone who I would want to have a further conversation with. But it so happened I did. The instructor for my class was Mr. James Berman. And James is my guest tonight. James is an instructor with NYU. He's got 20 plus years in the financial sector. He's a really interesting guy who's managed to find a way to take complex financial topics and make them understandable. So tonight, we're going to put a call in to Mr. James Berman, author and investment advisor, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about money, the markets, and to lighten things up towards the end, some great places to eat in New York City as well. My guest tonight is James Berman, president and founder of JBGlobal.com, an investment advisory firm specializing in asset management for high net worth individuals and trusts. James is also a regular blogger for Forbes teaches corporate finance at NYU, and is the author of Lessons from the Lemonade Stand, a common-sense primer on investing. He's here tonight to share his career journey with us, talk about the current state of financial literacy in America, and, since he's a lifelong New Yorker, hopefully give up some of the city's better places to eat. Because one day in the glorious future, I'm going to get back there and I'm going to need to be prepared. James, welcome to Largely the Truth. It's good to be here, Brennan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I met you earlier this summer when I audited your NYU course, which, as I was explaining to you off air, has been surprisingly useful to me as someone who normally does not do very well with calculations. How long have you been an instructor there? 
uh, two decades. So I've uh, been teaching there forever, and uh, it was fun to have you in the class because uh, you have a better radio voice than most people. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the fringe benefits. Like I say, I can't do math to save my life, but I can speak. Well, it was fun to have you, and uh, I have to say that uh, having someone uh, with a lot, you know, as you saw, we had people with a lot of different backgrounds, and that's the great thing about teaching there. You know, I teach in the continuing ed division, so not a bunch of kids in college. It's people who are coming from all different backgrounds, doing all different things. For some reason, whatever that reason may be, they want to learn a little bit about finance, which, uh, you know, is not taught everywhere. And a lot of people who have even college educations get really no learning in that area. And so they get out into the big bad world. And uh, it's, it's scary when you don't know anything about it. So I guess that's actually a great bridge to our, our main topic. I do definitely really want to hear about uh, about your background because you, your path to finance that you talked about in class, I found really interesting. But since you bring it up, as you mentioned, even people who have come from higher education, which I am not one, they still can struggle with basic financial literacy. Well, they don't teach that. They don't teach that in college or in most high schools. You know, if you go to college and you take an economics class, that's not going to teach you about personal finance. And then personal finance is looked upon as not academic enough for academics. There, obviously, there must be places where people learn it. And there are schools that do have courses in it, but it's really few and far between. What is that sort of meant generally for financial literacy then? I mean, it's, it's, it's really poor. It's really poor. You see... So many examples of it where people don't know the basics of a mortgage, don't know the basics of handling credit card debt, don't know the basics of what insurance they should get or shouldn't get. And it can be very empowering to learn that stuff. And it can be very difficult if you don't have a leg up with that. And a lot of people are not inclined to read about those topics. I mean, they're pretty boring for most people. So I feel like a lot of people do just sort of get to a certain point in life where they have maybe more responsibilities, more problems, but no more knowledge about it. And then they're left to either founder or then they can often go to a professional. Hopefully that professional is a good person who will take good care of them. But in the finance business, that's not a given. Right. And so it's tricky. Uh, I do think it's a big problem. I mean, that's one of the reasons... Um, I wrote that book, Lessons from the Lemonade Sand. It's just to give people a bit of a, a quick read where you could learn a lot about investing in one shot. And there are a lot of books out there, but most people are not inclined to read one of those books. Well, I, I remember my broker once suggested to me reading uh, One Up Wall Street and Liar's Poker. And <laughs> I found... Yeah. Lessons from the Lemonade Stand, which I, I read recently, I, I found that much more approachable and much more, um, it was much more easy to comprehend. And so I do recommend if we have any listeners out there who are sort of looking to understand things like the stock market, the bond market, even some things like compounding interest, I do recommend you pick up Lessons from the Lemonade Stand. You can get it on Kindle. I believe you can still get paper copies. Is that correct? No, it's just Kindle, but, okay. I, and I do warn you know, it's, it's not a page turner, but it, it will teach you something. <laughs> <laughs> As you will be, you will have to agree. Well, this is, uh, anyway. this is fair. But again, trying to teach me numbers is like trying to teach rocks about music. So it's, uh, you know, it started off at a disadvantage. 
uh, speaking of, of lessons from the lemonade stand in your life before finance, you were a writer for a time, correct? Well, I can't call myself a writer. I mean, I, uh, even then I, when I get out of college, I was, uh, uh, very lost and I graduated into a recession. That was one of the, you know, worst recessions of my era. I'm dating myself, but that was the 1990 <laughs> recession. Right. And, uh, that was a bad one. And I was trying to get a teaching job. I couldn't get a teaching job, uh, even with a bachelor's degree. And I thought I'm talking about teaching high school and teaching college. Right. Couldn't get a teaching job. Ended up trying to write a novel, which I eventually did write. It was a thriller. It was published, but it didn't sell any copies. I realized very quickly, wow, this writing thing is a lot harder than I thought. Right. Uh, even when you get something out there, if no one wants to read it, no one's going to read it. You can't force them to read it. And I, I took a very meandering path, you know, between college and other things. I, I tried to stave off uh, adulthood for as long as possible by doing a fellowship, which was an excuse to have a little money to do nothing for a while. And then I ended up living in an artist colony in the Berkshires. And my ostensible reason for doing that was writing my book, which I was doing, but I was doing a lot of not of that. And then uh, I did end up finally teaching uh, middle school English for a year. And so this really seems probably to anyone listening to this is going not in any particular direction, certainly not making progress. And I wasn't making progress, but I do tell my students, you know, it's a good idea to not know where you're headed in your 20s. I think in retrospect, that was true for me. And no one had said that to me. I, I also tell them, though, by the time you're 30s or 40s, you better know where you're <laughs> headed. So in your 20s, it's fun not to know. And it's actually probably a good idea not to know. But then you got to get serious at some point, or at least try to find a focus, I think, at some point. But I certainly didn't do that. Well, it's interesting to see that in retrospect, you can see you laying the foundations for where you'd end up because you've got the writing, which of course, then you, you wrote the book, you write for Forbes, you've got the teaching, which of course now you do with NYU. It's, it's, um, again, I think it's hard for us to see these things at the time because we're just in it and we don't, we can't see the larger direction. And so I, I think it's, uh, it, it's a valuable thing for people to, to recognize that, you know, if they're in their twenties or even early thirties, like certain podcasters on this call who didn't know what they were doing with their life, that, um, the decisions you make, as long as you're trying to, you know, make the best decision for yourself in that moment, you can be working towards something without necessarily realizing what that something is. Well, actually, that's helpful. You know, I think you're more insightful than my therapist who I was talking to just before this. <laughs> no, I, I do see how that sort of fits together. You know, I always did have an interest in teaching, and I would get to it different ways. You know, I when I couldn't get a job teaching, I was teaching Princeton Review, then I finally took middle school, and now I'm teaching adult education and finance. And so I do see how the threads came together for me, but it wasn't obvious at the time. I did, uh, after bouncing around between college and what was eventually law school, try a lot of different things. And then I went to law school and I did two years of that. I did end up finishing law school, but after my second year, I worked, I don't know if you can consider it being a lawyer if you work for six weeks as a summer associate. Still counts. Um, but well, <laughs> hey, I tell people I'm uh, my alma mater's NYU now, so uh, you know. <laughs> okay, good. Well, this is in keeping with the name of your show, so that's okay. Largely <laughs> the truth, but uh, I did realize I don't like being a lawyer, and the way I could tell that 
was in six weeks of working as a summer associate, I decided, well, let me just really immerse myself in not just uh, lawyers' work, but let me try to even live a lawyer's lifestyle. And I spent a lot of money trying to live a lot, and it all was a failure. Figured I'll go out to fancy lunches and see what that's like and right. do all this. And if it's, if, I still hated it. So then you know. I figured then you really know. So I took a year off from law school and started reading everything I could about various things. And one of the things I discovered then was the writings of this guy, Warren Buffett, out in Omaha. And that was really a transformative experience for me. And I guess for, you know, it's like discovering religion, although I've never been a religious person or something like that. It was akin to that, but of course it wasn't as profound. But from a career point of view, it was because I really liked what he had to say. And I didn't know that you could pursue finance and also have investing and also uh, look at it from an intellectual point of view and also from what I thought was a more interesting point of view and also from what I thought was, you know, not perfect, but an ethical point of view. And all those things Buffett provided me. So I went back to law school, did finish up the degree, had to make my mother happy by telling her I would do that, but I knew I wasn't (laughs) going to practice law. That was that. So I worked about starting my business at that point in a crazy, naive, dumb way where um, <laughs> it's, if I had to do it today with the, you know, the responsibilities and fears I have at the age of 52, I wouldn't be able to do it. Of course. Um, that was the time to do it in retrospect. Absolutely. Before we go further, for our listeners who don't know, could you explain a little bit about who Warren Buffett is and, and his significance? Yeah, he is without a doubt the greatest investor who's ever lived. He's a quirky guy because he's, you know, worth over $100 billion, but he lives in the same home in Omaha he bought in the 50s, uh, and he's lived in that home forever. And he draws only $100,000 salary from his company, Berkshire Hathaway, but he's become tremendously wealthy from the appreciation of the stock. He's also just interesting in many respects. He's pledged to give about 99% of his wealth to charity. Uh, He's given a lot of it away in his lifetime. Most of it is going away when he dies to the Gates Foundation and other charities. So he's a quirky, interesting, far from perfect, but uh, fascinating and uh, incredibly successful investor. Uh, And the way he got so successful was just by following a set of principles that he's always adhered to. It evolved over time. But looking uh, at stocks for what they are, which is pieces of companies, evaluating them on that basis, uh, without regard to all the noise and garbage that faces people every day when they look at the financial news. That was something I found really interesting in uh, Lessons from the Lemonade Stand. You really sort of got into the difference between an investor and a trader. And it's something you talked about in class as well. But it, the difference between the two had never occurred to me. And I wonder if could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I like making that distinction because I think it's very helpful in terms of investors and traders both participate in the same market, let's say the stock market. So you think they're doing the same thing. But traders are people who are buying and selling things, trying to speculate and trying to figure they can time the movement of those prices. So they might buy a stock and they'll do that thinking in three weeks, it's going to go up. But my view is, and it's, I, you know, I steal all these ideas from Buffett. I haven't created any of my own is that no one 
can predict that. And if you accept as a given that no one can predict it, then there's no point in trading. And the research bears that out. I mean, there's, let's put it this way, Buffett has been more successful than any trader who's ever lived. And the different distinction is an investor buys a share in what they think is a good business and then holds it with the idea of holding it for a very long time and making money off the growth of the business, not on any bet that the security price will go up in the near term. That is a big difference. At first, it doesn't sound like a big difference, but it's a philosophical difference because what you're doing is you are not betting that you have the ability to see the future. You're betting that you have the ability to identify a decent business that will grow over time. Now, again, people often say to me, well, isn't that the same thing? You're just hoping something goes up. Well, I would say no, because in one scenario, you have no way of knowing it. And in the other scenario, you have a decent chance of figuring it out. It's, it's a difference of looking at things differently. And, you know, looking at diff- things differently can be everything. Absolutely. And from the sound of it, one of the differences I, I found really interesting that, that had never occurred to me was that an investor will hold on to something even when the value of the stock dips because they believe the underlying value of the company is still intact. Yeah, that's a crucial distinction because, you know, if you're betting a stock, let's take the, you know, trader who I like, I like to call it speculating because I think that captures the idea that it's really placing a bet and you don't know how that bet's going to turn out. But let's right. say you buy a share of Apple stock because you think it's going to go up next week. Well, if it doesn't go up next week and you thought it was going to go up next week, what do you do? <laughs> you you sell because now it's gone down? Do you think it's going to go up the week after? Whereas if you buy a share of Apple because you think it's a great company and you have an iPhone and you see the need for iPhones and you feel that the stock is reasonably priced, which is a whole other sort of set of, of puzzles you have to figure out, then when it goes down in price, you have the conviction to hold it because you understand why would I sell something that I think is valuable just because it's gone down in price? It will go up eventually. You know, people can appreciate this more with real estate because you can touch it and feel it. Right. If you're sitting inside your house and you had a ticker symbol that showed the value of your house, and I don't recommend this, <laughs> <laughs> you, you install that in your master bedroom and it's above your bed and you can see that your house has dipped by $10,000 today. Not only would that not be relaxing, but it might make cause you to make poor decisions about what you do with your house. I mean, in 09 or something like that, when the real estate market collapsed and you saw your house was down by 50%, uh, you might panic and think it's going to go to zero. But why don't people do that with houses? Because they understand, well, I live in it, first of all. And second of all, how can it go to zero? I can touch it and feel it. It's a house I can live in. Right. It's actually the same with great companies, but people can't appreciate it when it's just an electric blip on the screen. They, they can't, it's very hard to appreciate that, but it's the same rationale. It's really taking stocks and looking at them more like real estate or businesses, looking at it as a business owner. I mean, Buffett always gives this example because he grew up in Nebraska and because his son runs a farm. But, you know, if you're a farmer and you wake up and you see the price of your farm every day, and believe me, you could get quotes. Any farmer can get a valuation of what their farm is worth every day. Would you sell it because it's down 10% one week? I mean, that wouldn't make sense if the farm is bringing you income and sustenance. Right. 
you would keep it as long as it's doing that. So Buffett says with that example, if the farm went down in price, you might look into buying your neighbor's farm as well. You wouldn't sell your farm. But that makes all the difference, and uh, I think it's important. In your bio, I mentioned that your company, uh, jbglobal.com, primarily or not primarily, exclusively deals with clients who have a uh, considered to be a high net worth. And before we go to the next question, I'm kind of curious, what is the threshold for that? What, what constitutes a, a high net worth? I need an aggregate level of assets under management to make it worth it for me because of the time I put in. Sure because I also do financial planning and that's unlimited within my fee where it has to be a certain aggregate amount of assets under management. It sounds like a very high amount and it is, but I, it's $2 million, but I raised it over time. When I first started, it was, you know, 25,000. Right. And advisors, unfortunately have to do that, which I think excludes a lot of people, but that's one of the realities of the business. High net worth individuals, there, there are um, regulatory definitions of that. Right that are different and everyone's definition of it is a little bit different, but it means someone with, you know, some investable assets of some, of some kind. And often from a regulatory point of view, those people are thought to be quote unquote more sophisticated so they can fend for themselves in the wild west of investing. Of course, that's not always the case. And that brings me to my, to my next question. Literacy. Um, sorry. Yeah. So that, that brings me to my next question, which is, what is your sense of financial literacy of people at that level? And do you, at when you're dealing with, with clients at that level, do you see an understanding of the concepts you've, you've illustrated in terms of trading versus investing? No, I find that most people, no matter what level they're at, think that the stock market is a casino and don't really understand the Buffett way of looking at companies. I understand that because that's what the stock market looks like. And of course, they're there is part of it that is a casino. I mean, if you look at it, it looks like a casino. It sounds like a casino. Pretty much you have to say it's a casino. Right. Uh, and certainly it can give that opportunity to anyone. Anyone can go in and speculate and have lots of fun betting in different directions and maybe lose all their money, maybe not. Um, but I find, you know, across all incomes and net worths, people have difficulty appreciating that concept. And as far as financial planning, you do find people with more assets sometimes have more experience. They tend to be older, first of all. Right. But they tend to have more familiarity with insurance, with, you know, estate planning, with real estate, with debt. And so they've usually acquired more knowledge about those areas. But those areas are so important. And so many people, I do find clients even with a lot of money um, who have a lot of trouble in that area. And of course, when someone gets a lot of money quickly, you always hear about these lottery winners getting a lot of money quickly and then they, a few years later, they're impoverished again because they didn't know how to handle that money in a way that it would uh, be sustainable for them. In fact, I know of at least one person who did that, a fellow from back home. He won, the, I think, several million dollars. He, he married a... An exotic dancer, he gave all his groomsmen Harley Davidson, and uh, I believe he is on social assistance the day of today. Well, actually, given the scenario you said after he won the lottery, I don't think we have to ask how the money got lost. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry to hear that story because I mean, you know, there, there are there are tons of stories like that, but wow. Oh yeah, that's it's, an interesting one. Yeah, 
<laughs> you'll have to have him on your podcast. I'd like to. In fact, now I'm just, I want to hear more about that. But <laughs> In your opinion, then, if we're, if we got someone out there listening who buys lottery tickets, who, or, or starts investing and, and gets lucky, you know, on the off chance that happens. What is the first thing someone who, or even inherits a lot of money, because sometimes that happens. What's the first thing someone who comes into money should do? The first thing is easy. They should do nothing. Okay. Um, you know, and that's advice that's also given to someone who's a widow or a widower, let's say, who just inherited a lot of money. There's such an impulse right away to do something. You know, you've got this money. Oh, I got to find someone to invest it. Oh, I got to plow it into this. Oh, people are asking for now. I should give it away. You do nothing for the fixed six months while you just educate yourself. Right. Because money can sit in a bank account, even if it's earning nothing with today's interest rates. It's safer doing that than you trying to just feel it's burning a hole in your pocket and you got to figure it out. So the first thing is nothing. The second thing is learning. That might be consulting professionals for some people. It might mean reading books for others. It might mean listening to podcasts, reading blogs. Fortunately, one of the good things is there's a lot of good financial information out there now. You know, there are sites like Morningstar that has fabulous articles on various topics of financial literacy, investing, but also financial planning, estate planning, all that stuff. There are websites like NOLO that uh, are legal websites that can give you um, uh, the basics on wills and all that stuff. There are good insurance websites. There's lots of legitimate sources of uh, free information. So uh, first, nothing. Then educate yourself, and only after then, then you you know then you got to figure out some things because there is if there is truth to the story. More money, more problems. Now you got to figure out, you know how are you going to protect that money, how you're going to invest it. And there's no easy answer to that. But the first answer is to do nothing because the money won't be lost if it's sitting in the bank. Interesting. I, I know there's some fellows back home and this may be the equivalent of guys sitting around the barbershop, you know, and that level of, of acumen. But I know they, they would always say the first thing you do is you, you, you get a lawyer and you firewall yourself. But uh, it doesn't sound like that's really a concern. You know, there's two types of people who come into money. One where it's public and they're going to get besieged with requests and they got to insulate themselves from all kinds of people who are going to be hounding them, trying to make money off of them. Right. But if we're talking about the more typical situation where someone comes into money because they were left money by a relative or something and now they don't know what to do, I don't think the first thing you necessarily need to do is to hire a lawyer. At a certain point, you do have to have what's called an estate plan especially if you have children that you want to leave your money to, because if you die without a will, that's called dying intestate, which is, you know, that word should sound scary enough in Latin or in English. And it just means that you're leaving behind a mess. Right. So everyone out there who has children should have a will. And if you have a spouse, you should probably consider a will too. If you don't have that, you don't have to worry as much about it. But yes. um, that, that would be where you hire the lawyer. But, uh, you know, I worry about always referring people immediately to lawyers because lawyers like to recommend lots of complex trusts. And the reason they like to do that is some of these things are good for the client, but some of these things are just expensive and enrich themselves. Right. So I actually would encourage anyone to read a lot 
I, I that could sound burdensome. And if you, you know if if you're not into it, it's going to be more burdensome. But there's a lot of stuff out there about the first things you do, and I I wouldn't say hire a lawyer would be the first one because the lawyer's here to protect me from these people, but who's here to protect me from the lawyers? <laughs> yeah. That's going to be your problem. Who watches the watchman? Yeah. So you got to be your own watchman in the end. Fair enough. And for our listeners, if you are at all curious about these things, check out the websites that James mentioned. I will put them in the show notes, but also be wary of bad information on the internet. I know uh, a former guest of mine on the different iteration of the show, Mel O, who is a financial advisor uh, and planner out of uh, Las Vegas. She sort of has made a, a small cottage industry out of correcting bad financial information on TikTok. And there is a lot of bad financial information on TikTok. So let's include that as a caveat. It's good you mentioned that because there must be a lot of really gar- garbage out there. Yeah, you, you do want to keep it to a few few websites. But yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, Brennan, after, I'll, I'll give you a list of a few that you can put up there for people afterwards that are implicit, you know, that are definitely trustworthy. Perfect. No, that, would, that would be great. So one last question on the uh, sort of your, your career uh, in finance thus far. I'm kind of curious, you, as, as you mentioned, you've been doing this for more than 20 years. You've seen markets evolve. You've seen booms, busts, recessions. I'm really curious to know, well, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious to hear your thoughts on how the market has evolved, but that sort of ties into a question I have for later. But I'm kind of curious just to, to know how you've seen investors involve or evolve rather. Well, you see the technology behind investing evolving a lot. And, you know, when I first started out in the business, people were using full service brokers. And when I first got into the business, the main transition was to discount brokers like Schwab and E-Trade. Those were newfangled things at the time. Now, the big thing is a lot of people can move to what are called robo-advisors who, um, uh, and pretty much every major financial firm now has a form of that. Uh, you know, there was a firm better, there's a firm betterment who sort of specialized in that, but where you can get, uh, a online platform to invest for you for relatively cheap, uh, fee. And those are great services because for people who don't need any financial planning and don't need any discussions on an ongoing basis with an advisor, they can have an artificial intelligence robot do it for them. And so the technology is always evolving, but I think the one thing that's never evolving and is just cycling through cycles is human psychology. Right. And the cycle between boom and bust, or Buffett calls greed and fear, and uh, the way in which that will never change because that's embedded in human nature. And that's why you see crashes periodically, because there are booms, there are busts. And there's always going to be that cycle. So it just, you know, the more things change, as they say, the more they remain the same because the technology evolves. But the human foibles behind the technology, I don't think that evolves at all. I think it just goes on and on and on. So, and that leads me to my next question, actually, which is in a number of recent columns for Forbes, you've stated repeatedly that you think we're seeing a market bubble developing in real time, things with like NFTs, cryptocurrencies. Uh, there was a deli you mentioned in one article. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I, I know people must be, you know, with the pandemic, I, th- I think people assumed we'd be in a worse place than we are financially. But obviously it seems like you think there, you know, there's still some, uh, there's still some room to go down. 
Yeah, I think there are lots of bubbles out there. And what I would say about that is, look, when we, because of the pandemic, the Fed had to, and government in general, had to give what's, you know, what's called a lot of stimulus, both what they call monetary stimulus in the form of tax breaks and subsidies and extended unemployment and direct assistance through things like the PPP loans and all kinds of things. And I'm sorry, that's called fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, which is where the Fed keeps rates very low to stimulate economic activity. And so they have put the pedal to the metal with all this stuff. Now that has kept the economy going. And if they hadn't done that last year in 2020 at this time, we would be in a great depression. There's no question about that because things were that bad after the lockdowns. But the issue now is what happens is when you make economic conditions like that, that are called loose, which means that, you know, money is available. Probably no one ever feels like money's available to them, but the reality <laughs> is money has been borrowable at low rates for a while. Not right. if you had bad credit, but if you had good credit, it's been borrowable at low rates for a while. It starts to create these unintended consequences. One of the major ones of those is bubbles. And this happened in 99. This happened even in the wake of the internet collapse in 02. Uh, and then a lot of people say that the reaction to the O2 crash of technology stocks gave rise to the bubble of housing in 08, 09. So sometimes it feels like we're just careening between different bubbles. But I do think what's happened now is you have a lot of money flowing into a lot of places. And a lot of it has flown into crypto. And I have no axe to grind with crypto except the fact that you can't value it the way Warren Buffett would value a company because it has no yield. And so I stay away from it. But right. I also do think, as I have said in my Forbes column, and I'm not going to mince words about it, I've never seen so much garbage trading at such high prices. And what I mean by that is these, not, these non-fungible tokens, these collectibles, all this digital stuff. You know, at some point, there's always a reckoning. doesn't mean that these things won't become stores of value over time. And there's certainly room for more currencies in the world and certainly ones that are not created by countries and central banks. The question is just, when do we get, there's going to be, you know, at a certain point, these things get priced too high. And right. then they have to collapse. And then they can go up again. But you got to go through that reckoning period. It's always happened. It will always happen. And I think we're going to see a lot of that. On the subject of the NFT thing, I, I have to say I don't, I, I understand the process. I understand what it is. I don't understand the appeal because it, it reminds me of years ago, like 20 years ago, back when the game Diablo 2 was popular. I used to know a guy named Russ and Russ was a wonderful man who knew everything you could know then about marijuana. And he liked to play Diablo 2 and he wanted to buy additional items for the online component. And so I had a credit card. He did not. He would give me money. I would buy him his items. And I never understood that because you're paying real money for something that doesn't exist and, and whose circumstances for survival you cannot affect in any way. And then 20 years on, we're looking at people paying thousands, if not millions of dollars for something which is in fact just as 
insubstantial, but is now considered, uh, you know, it, it, it's not just, uh, you know, my, my stoner friend buying axes to kill the devil. It, it's, it's a piece of art and, and there's all this assumption of, of intrinsic value. And, and it, I, I suppose you can see the, the progression, but I, I find the whole thing kind of baffling. You know, what happens is with anything, if it goes up over time, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it could have no intrinsic value, but if something goes up over time, people look at a chart and they say, that goes up, I'll buy it. And then more people do that. And you can see the way this will then boost the price. And it takes on a life of its own. And in value investing circles, we call this the greater fool theory, because it's the idea that if you buy something because it's going up, you only have to buy it with the idea that you'll eventually sell it at a higher price. And it's often said, then you'll be selling it to a greater fool than you because you both bought something at a price too high for whatever value this thing is worth. But your justification is if you can sell it at a higher price, what difference does it make? So the Buffett strategy is never buying something on that basis. Never buying something that just because it's gone up, always looking and seeing, does it have intrinsic value on its own? And for Buffett, at least with stocks, that's measured by does it produce cash? And since currencies and NFTs don't produce cash, they don't make the cut. Right. And I have to imagine, as with any game of musical chairs, at some point, the music's going to stop and there's not going to be enough seats. The music always does stop. And unfortunately, musical chairs is a good analogy, but it's not perfect because usually one chair gets taken away. I mean, when, when the music stops with musical chairs and investing, like it did in March of 2000, or it did in October of 2007, there's usually very few people with chairs at all. Well, on, on that despairing note, we've only got you for a, a couple more minutes here, James. So I, I want to, <laughs> in order to cheer everyone and myself up, again, you, you mentioned on, during class, you're a lifelong New Yorker. And so I got to know, give me a couple spots that, uh, you know, if I'm coming from in from out of town, maybe I won't see this in a travel guide somewhere. Uh, what's a, someplace I, I got to hit up? Well, besides Nathan's Hot Dogs in Coney Island, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm always much happier to be consulted about food than finances, because that's actually my favorite topic. But, you know, New York has been, you know, the restaurant scene has been really changed because of the pandemic. But the great thing is now, if you do come to New York, and I encourage everyone to come now, because, you know, we've got all these weird outdoor eating environments. Oh, Some yes. of them are really fantastic. And so some of them have taken on, you know, as someone said to me recently, New York has just turned into a carnival. So if you <laughs> want to see a carnival in action, you can come out. <laughs> New York is always a carnival in some sense, but you can come and uh, see that. But there's nothing like some of the old pizzerias here, like Grimaldi's, which is a fantastic pizzeria. I mean, New York, you know, I don't know what your listeners are going to say, but New York does have the best pizza. No argument here. So, I know New York yeah, pizza is the only good. pizza my wife likes. Yeah, well, they say it's in the water, so I think that's behind the bagels too. So I think that might be there might be something to that. We actually um, had a place here that brought in a chemist to match the pH of their water to New York water in an attempt to make New York style pizza. And did that work? Well, it wasn't New York style pizza, but it was it was it was as close as I've come, you know, outside of the uh, outside of the state. Well, something we talked about in class is how. You know, uh, pizza ovens uh, also gain value from being old. So much right. flavor has been cooked in there. 
So you got to look for an old place. That's of course. I suggest Grimaldi's. Grimaldi's. All right. And now any thoughts? You got a, you got a noodle place? You have a, a faux place? Anything like that? Yes. Uh, great ramen is, well, I'm in really into ramen more than faux. Okay. So I've got, you know, a Pudo ramen near Astor Place is really amazing, amazing ramen. My daughter's favorite ramen place, and I know that means it's great because she is a real connoisseur of ramen because her parents met eating ramen. Huh? So that means she has the genes to appreciate ramen. Absolutely. I'm, I'm certain that's how that works. <laughs> Largely the truth. <laughs> exactly. That's it. It's baked into the show. All right, James. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me, man. My guest has been Mr. James Berman, head of jbglobal.com. James, do you have any, uh, any links or any uh, places where you want people to find you? Well... I recommend going to NYU and checking out their adult education classes. You can Google NYU SPS. And my website is jbglobal.com. But I, uh, I, I also just want everyone to uh, read, the, read the letters of Warren Buffett. You can get that at berkshirehathaway.com. Because, uh, you know, if you want to learn something about finance, the cheapest and easiest way is to just read what he's written. Perfect. Well, thanks again for being here, James. Thank you, Brennan. Take it easy. All right. Thanks again to my guest, Mr. James Berman, head of jbglobal.com. You heard the man. You can find him at jbglobal.com. You can also find him in the NYU Continuing Education Program, teaching a corporate finance class. And as someone who has been part of that class, I can recommend it. If that's a world you want to know more about, I really don't think you can do any better than taking James's course. If you like the show, but you want to get it free of ads, head on over to patreon.com slash largely the truth. And for $2 a month, you get an ad-free stream that's a weekly show with no ads and also any bonus material that happens to come along the way. Again, that's patreon.com slash larger the truth and only $2 a month gets you in the door for ad-free episodes and bonus material when available. Also early drops, forgot to mention that as well. If you want to hear more of my voice, you can find me over at the Ghost Story Guys podcast. That's ghoststoryguys.com and everywhere fine podcasts live. That comes out every two weeks and I co-host it with the great Paul Bestel who's also host of the Mysteries and Monsters podcast. Huge thanks, of course, to Peter of Pizzanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. He's also part of the label Night Harvest Recordings, which you can find at nightharvestrecordings.com. And of course, finally, I'd like to thank you for listening. Without you, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.